Hello, Regina. Hello. Hi. So we have you on the line again. You can hear me all right? Yep. Can you hear me? Yep. Fine. So this is Pamela Like the Ghost, and we have Regina Faye, the UK singer-songwriter. We have her on for the second time in support of your new projects, uh, which part one is out right now called Lie to You. And yes. then on July 3rd, you have Getting Over You. Yes. So, so um, I was reading on your Instagram that you've taken this time in quarantine to work on uh, orchestral um, music. And that's what these um, part one and part two are using your new orchestral style of uh, recording. Yes. Part one was actually produced by Georgina Agomba, who also produced Kaleidoscope. But two, three and four are all produced by me. Oh, that's interesting. So that's that's because of the result of the COVID quarantine you weren't able to get. Was it planned to still use your previous producer or was the plan to kind of do, do it yourself? I wanted to try out how it would be if I did it myself. And I just figured this would be a good song to try it with. And I liked how it turned out. So I've gone ahead and done the rest as well. So we previously interviewed you and we got into the fact that you, um, you're a singer-songwriter, you mix folk, country, classical, and pop, and now yes. you're kind of doubling down on a more like classical orchestral side. Um, yep. so, so when did you, did, how soon did you start working on this, this new idea? Or was this something that you were already working on and then COVID happened and you decided to like focus on it? So the songs I'd written quite a while ago, I just hadn't figured out how I should go about the production. And when COVID happened, I just figured, well, I have the extra time, so I may as well just learn a new skill. So I tried it and now they're, yeah. So your orchestral, how are you getting this music to be produced? Are you doing it all within like a, a DAW or you're using like hardware sense to, to work it out? How are you actually arranging that? I'm using Logic, so they're all um, software instruments. I usually use the keyboard to write them. So you use a MIDI controller? Yeah. What what particular MIDI controller do you use? Do you, did you have to find one that was more expressive to do the classical work, or did you were able to use what you already had? I just used what I already had and sometimes I just used my computer's own keyboard because I can always rearrange it after it's recorded when it's MIDI. So for orchestral music do you have to do a lot of like uh, production work to like get the the little micro details in you know and how the instruments are played or you're able to get that through like there's some new types of MIDI that allow you to be more expressive um, but do you have to like code that through the door? I usually just do it through the door so I can adjust different velocity, the strength, the style. So for violins, for example, it can be staccato or legato. I can all do that on the computer. Yeah, because there's like some new types of um, MIDI that are coming to the forefront that mm. it's beyond like MIDI 2 it's like more expressive type of um, keyboards that bring back this idea of um, polyphonic aftertouch, mm. which um, in the future, but one of the things that actually had it in the past was the famous 
um, Dream Machine machine from Yamaha that Stephen Wonder used on uh, Songs in the Key of Life. And it actually was a fully analog polyphonic synth that had polyphonic aftertouch, which allowed you to kind of, you could shake the keys to get vibrato, vibrato. You could, you know, press them at different um, strengths and get full kind of expression. Like it's almost like an acoustic instrument, but it's very expensive to do. I mean, that, that machine was like a $200,000 machine. Oh, wow. <laughs> uh, so, so there's not a lot of synths that can do that. There's some synths that are mm-hmm. starting to bring it back, but it, it makes your synth go from being like under $1,000 to being like four or five or $8,000 to be able to do it. Um, but it's, it's really cool, you know, if you get in a studio that ever has one of these, because it allows you to really, you know, express yourself you know, when you're trying to mimic other instruments, the fact that you can shake the key to get vibrato or, or, or do other things that you wouldn't normally be able to do with a normal keyboard. But you found a way to do it through the software. So that's interesting. So maybe talk more about how you uh, <clears throat> sorry, uh, constructed this whole um, set of songs. You said there's like multiple parts. There's up to how many parts in total? There are four parts in total. So each one will come out as a single. Yes. Are you going to put them all together as an EP? So I've been treating them almost as if they're volumes in a book series. So they all follow the same story, but I feel like they're also singles within their own right. There's no plan to actually put them together as a compilation of all four? As a playlist, but not as an EP. Not as an EP. Kind of stand on their own. That's interesting, because sometimes if you do a project like that, maybe you want to feel the full, complete voice, but people can't playlist things together and then get to that point anyway. Um, so maybe kind of talk about how each part, well, you've got parts that aren't, that aren't coming out yet, but parts one and two, or two comes out on the third, one is out now. Maybe talk about the story behind it. So... The story behind the whole series, I think, is something probably everyone has gone through at some point. So this was before I was out of the closet, and I really liked this girl, but I couldn't say anything about it. And eventually we became friends. I was working up the courage to talk to her, to say something. But so much was happening at the time with uni and life and work, and eventually we drifted apart. I found out through someone else that she was dating someone, and... For a while, I didn't know what to feel, but then it all just came at me at once. I was, yeah, I was hurt, but it was mostly just I was angry at myself that I didn't say anything. Yeah. So that's a, that's I, a hard feeling. I think a lot of singer songwriters over the years have kind of expressed that feeling. <laughs> and <laughs> some of their best songs are about like that kind of heartache when you don't tell the truth to the person that you love and how how that comes out. Um, I yeah. think that's like a real, like a singer-songwriter focus because it's like it gets to the heart of something that I think you can draw into that pain and mm-hmm. then relay it in different, every songwriter relays it in a different way, but it's a universal, like, understood feeling yeah. that you can tap into. And it has a lot of power in the, what it, the art that comes out of it from my experience, at least listening to people who have used that kind of theme. Mm-hmm. So that is that, is the, is, um, so live to you, is that like the first 
piece of this suite um, to kind of get into that. That's that's is it sequentially going in order the story, or does it kind of merge? Does it matter where you start with your suite? So, like I said, they can all stand on their own as a different emotion. But what I felt when I was writing them is I I wrote lie to you first, and then I thought that's it. I'm over these feelings. But then I actually realized that when you're going through something like that, you have multiple feelings and different faces and different stages that you go through. So the other three songs were also following on that feeling. So Lie to You was mostly regret and just anger. And then Getting Over You is a lot more sad, but it also has that kind of calmness and the acceptance in it and then finally it'll all come together so it's getting over you is it sometimes when people say getting over you that at the end of the day they you'll find out what they really didn't get over you (laughs) so (laughs) did the song getting over you kind of um complete that thought or does it kind of admit that maybe you didn't you never got over them or do you finally get to a point where you you kind of reconcile it it's quite funny because I wrote it because I was, on one hand, I was accepting things as they were. On the other hand, I was still aware that I had some time and some work to do before I could actually get over this person. So that's what, that that conflict is what that song came out of. Yeah, it's interesting because I've kind of, I have a couple of songs that, that address that in my catalog. And I always end up being like, well, you know what, I really never got over that person because <laughs> I have this one central theme uh, in my music that kind of goes into this this like lost love I had like when I was in my 20s and I'm in my 50s right so he's like well you know you're not over that yet and I was like I guess not <laughs> but um, I kind of use it all the time it just always comes back into my music and I just kind of came to the realization that like well I guess I never really got over this person because I keep on writing songs <laughs> <laughs> But it just like sometimes you just like you you think you got over them and then something comes back in a memory wash and then boom it comes right back. Yeah. Um, so I, yeah, I totally can get into that. So I'm looking forward to listening to that on July 3rd. So so again, like how long did it take to you to derive these songs? Did they kind of flow out of you, or did you have to really work hard because of the orchestral nature of it? Writing them, actually writing them was quite fast. Like I wrote Lie to You within a few hours because I just had to get it out right that moment. And Getting Over You, similarly, I wrote it out in one page, just wanting to get the words out. I didn't even think about the melody when I was writing it. But I feel like the production side of it definitely took more time, but it was also much more fun because I got to actually think about every single detail, every single note, and what feeling those would give every single instrument. So you were you still thinking of, like, in the themes for this, you, you had talked about previously in the last interview, is you're bringing, like, your med- medieval studies into your music. So you're trying to bring some of that. So is that some of what you're doing, or are you moving in a different direction? Like, in terms of classical composition, who... Who are the reference points for this this particular uh, phase, this project? 
I find I take a lot of inspiration from musical theatre in particular because it's all about telling a story in musical theatre and they also have these great orchestras that just add so much to the feeling of the songs and I think that's what I was drawing on mostly for these. Oh, so like the, the kind of theater, theatrical, like like a Broadway yeah. or like more, what type of theater? Like, so I was, I especially like Fiddler on the Roof, for example, because okay. yeah. it has such a beautiful soundtrack with a lot of violins, obviously, because of the name. <laughs> and I wanted to focus on the string section because that's, what I played, so that's what I was most knowledgeable about. Yeah, it's interesting because when, when I think of like a lot of strings I listen to, go back to um, well, I like Beethoven, I like Bach, but a lot of mm-hmm. times I'll go back and listen to progressive rock bands that try to synthesize strings. <laughs> you, you know, like Keith Emerson. I'll go back, you know, listening to like what Yes used to do, and it's kind of interesting because it's not exactly classical i mean they're tr- classically trained but they're kind of taking mm-hmm. it in a different direction i mean you hear classical you know concepts in that in progressive rock mm-hmm. but a lot of times it's you know it's synthesized violence it's not real violence um maybe if you listen to a band like pink floyd you start to hear even more orchestral stuff but yeah i've always mm-hmm. been kind of drawn into a kind of progressive between progressive and jazz fusion trying to bring in sounds in that vein so it's interesting you're coming from a theatrical aspect, which I guess would mean if you go by listen to like the big bands and like Frank Sinatra, you could hear a lot of strings and that stuff. Mm-hmm. So that's interesting too, because sometimes I, I do like, I, lately I've been listening to a lot of Sinatra, a lot of big bands from the 50s and the 40s. Mm-hmm. And, you know, there's a lot of, like a lot of feeling in that music. Yeah. Do you find any particular error in like music that, drives you more now and what you listen to like if you're going to listen to any kind of error in music there's any particular error that you were kind of drawn into I'm I don't think I listen to a lot of contemporary stuff but I also like more like I said so musical theater a lot of pieces that were written while ago but are still being performed mm-hmm. um, so maybe stuff from the 50s and 60s that's yeah. still still be on the loud theater is all based from that time period um or even earlier in you know 40s and stuff but yeah mm-hmm. so i i, I kind of get drawn into certain focus um lately like I, I, the big bands like the frank sinatra and then i've been mm-hmm. really getting heavy into sunra which is a, a jazz american jazz band that was uh, kind of predated Miles Davis. Uh, and if I had more time in, during the lockdown to kind of dive into their catalog. <laughs> so I've been using that time to like do a lot of interesting things. But um, yeah, so you took the time in this in the coronavirus um, pandemic to, to kind of double down on, on your craft, which is interesting because yeah. most of the musicians I've been talking to, I've been double down on podcasting. A lot of musicians have been like, uh, focusing on, well, I'm going to learn how to engineer my stuff better so I can kind of do my own mm-hmm. um, production because I can't get to the studio because <laughs> they won't <laughs> let me go to the studio. Uh, and they can't do live performances, so they're doing a lot of compositions. So I've talked to a lot of bands that had projects that suddenly 
okay, I'm, I'm, I'm not touring, so I'm actually going to work on another project. Mm-hmm. So do you, did you find that that you were focusing more on, on writing than uh, doing anything like in terms of performance or playing out anywhere? Yeah, I've been, I've done some Facebook live performances, but I felt like this was a time for me to just think about and just focus on the stuff that I was actually writing and producing. And I actually had the time to go into a lot of detail, I think. Yeah, because I mean, that's that's what I've, I've heard. I, I, I've done a lot of Twitch and Facebook Live stuff. Mm-hmm. And I actually finally, I finally got a booking agent in the middle of a pandemic. <laughs> um, <laughs> and so I finally got an international booker that could actually get me into shows and there's no shows to go to. <laughs> um, but, but they actually called me and told me, oh, we're going to try to get you some online stuff. And I said, well, stuff that's going to pay. And they said, yeah. And I said, well, okay, well, that's cool. Um, so we're waiting to hear. But yeah, I finally have a booker. I might be able to, you know, get across the pond someday and actually travel to Asia and do other shows. But like things are so bad in the U.S. right now, they won't let us out. (laughs) (laughs) You know, So even if I wanted to go somewhere, I can't get into the EU at all because they just just banned us. So I'm like, oh, great. (laughs) Um, So I guess I'm going to be recording more. (laughs) But uh, yeah, it's just interesting. You know, people have taken uh, this crisis to kind of focus on their art you know most of the people i've talked to in the last two months have spent a lot of time on their craft um so have you you know i know there's like a stressful time for some people it's just like really freaking them out <laughs> um but some people have been able to kind of like find a safe space and and, and continue their art so do you, do you feel like you've been able to be very productive in this time yeah, I think so. I've just been trying to keep busy in a way and keep entertained. So just focusing on the music and focusing on art, it has been a great distraction, I think. Yeah, I think for people who are creative, I think we're in a better spot than people like I've talked to athletes and it's really kind of freaking mm-hmm. them out because like that their whole business is they have to be out, right? Yeah. And they, they're having a hard time kind of trying to figure out what they're going to do you know some of them have actually gone and become involved in social movements and found ways mm-hmm. to do things with charity so now they've, they've kind of redirected their energy but mm-hmm. other people like they find it hard if they can't be in places with other people to, to, yeah. to be if they're not a creative person you know they're more of a person that doesn't create but they're just a social person they've had a lot of stress mm-hmm. in this time <laughs> Um, which I can understand, but being a creative, I just have taken it and like a lot of the other creatives I've talked to, they've been able to find a way to navigate this. Yeah. Cause that's, I think that's the way a lot of creative people deal with stress in their lives. You just create more. <laughs> yeah. We just like double down on the process. I mean, I started getting into polyrhythmic, uh, processing cause like, I saw this Moog I wanted that I can't afford. I said, well, can I get my current gear to do the same thing with like, you know, subdivisions and polyphonic uh, subharmonics? And I was like, oh, this great new mode came out, but I can't afford it. But can I get my current gear to do the same thing? And I started Mm -hmm. digging into it. And I said, oh, I can actually create these polyrhythmic subdivisions and subharmonics with the stuff I already have. 
<laughs> so I started spending time doing that, and I just and I got down the rabbit hole, and I got stuck there. <laughs> um, but that's one cool thing about synthesis is that you can get you you can get distracted in the machines, you know, like the ghost in the machine. It's kind of why I'm named mm-hmm. fan of like ghost because I get caught up in that. Um, but I find that like electronic music really gives you a lot of power because I can just pretty much do anything. Yeah. I set my mind to. So do you find the fact that, you know, you're in these DAWs and you have all these soft sense, you have so much, you know, if you're like an artist, you have a big palette, a sonic palette. You can like pretty much do anything. If you, yeah, you can get to anything you want. And so you're not really, oh, I got to get to this studio because they've got a Moog or they've got a profile or they've got this piano I want to get when you can actually get a lot of the tones you want off of your laptop yeah and also in a way I find having so much variety can be a bit overwhelming so it's actually good to sometimes try and set a certain limit maybe and try oh what can I do with just this and I think that's a very great creative exercise I've been doing that especially with orchestral music I'm just focusing on like orchestral instruments or like maybe I will add one more extra instrument or one synth and then try and see what I can do. So just. So are you primarily focused on strings or are you bringing in winds or are you mostly focused on the strings? So with getting over you, because it was the first orchestral thing I was doing, I did go a bit all out. So that song actually has violin, viola, cello and upright bass in the string section and it also has a celesta harp obviously drums a french horn tuba and even some trumpets so wow, you, you went all <laughs> out just... you got the whole, whole <laughs> that that so that, how long did it take you to like coordinate all those parts quite a while especially because i was still learning and i think it was actually good that i did all of that in my first song because it really gave me a lot of experience trying out new things. Yeah, it's interesting because I, I started as a clarinet player. Uh, I started on winds. I started in clarinets and then I got the alto and baritone. And then I found I couldn't write like music with just winds and horns. So I, I, I went to, you know, learn piano and keyboard. And then I took that, that knowledge of knowing how to do a wind and kind of incorporated how I do things. Um, so I have a, a little bit of like a, a clarinet player in my sound, but <laughs> but yeah, I've always looked at wind controllers uh, to to kind of bring that into my music. Sometimes um, mm-hmm. they use like MIDI wind controllers, and then because I know how to play a clarinet, I could mm-hmm. actually play it better on that controller than actually a keyboard because I could bring some of that feel to the music. Mm-hmm. And it's always interesting, like sometimes you want to give yourself a limitation. It's like, well, maybe I wouldn't play it on the wind controller because I want to do it on the keyboard and see if I can do something that maybe can't be done on the keyboard, but maybe it limits me and makes me do it a different way. Yeah. So I think it's always like sometimes you put one hand behind your back just to try to see if it changes the sound. <laughs> <laughs> um and I think we have musicians would do that all the time. They'll try to, you know, challenge themselves. Like, oh, I'll do this in a different scale. I'll, I'll, I'll make my own scale, or I'll, I'll, I'll change it to a polyrhythm, make it more complicated, make it dissonant, make it this and that. You just you find different ways to kind of challenge 
you know, the, what it ever needed to service the song. Yeah. And, like, for me, at least, it's my song, so I can essentially try it. And if I don't like it, I can just take it away. Yeah. So that's really been fun. <laughs> yeah, I think the cool thing about being a, a producer, like a, a singer-songwriter, is like, okay, well, you, you got this palette, and you, you don't have to be, like, if you're working in a band, and you bring it to like four, the three other people in the band and they can vote you out like right away. <laughs> you know, cause I've been in bands like, okay, I'll try this and I'll bring this and they got, you know, three guys vote and they're like, no, that's not going. And then, okay. And, but when you're doing it yourself, you say, okay, well, you kind of, it's even more of a challenge because then you say, well, you know, you got to be self-critical. Yeah. You got to figure out what's going to work and what doesn't work. You can't just throw it all in. And so, you know, you kind of like, oh, well, you kind of think, well, would my band, bass player, would he have liked that? Does it really work? You know, would my drummer have thought mm-hmm. that this was the right kind of drum part? At least I haven't worked with other people. I can kind of be a little more self-critical because I know what those guys would have done. Uh, but then sometimes I say, well, I don't really care what they wanted. I'm going to do it my way. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, so have you worked... I think I asked you before. Have you worked with other people in collaboration? Are you are you starting to work with anybody in collaboration besides your producer? I have done a collab recently called Deo, and it was with Insidian. He did love the producing part of it, and it's been quite fun. I think because it's really interesting seeing what other people bring to it, seeing what they say about it. It just brings a new perspective. Yeah, so it's like when you have that kind of back and forth with somebody else, you know, yeah. it's it's really cool because like I I've, I've worked on things where you know I thought rhythmically I could I could I could change something, and then somebody else said, well, you know, they liked it the way it was, and I thought it was like, well, mm-hmm. it's not perfect, and they they came back and said, well, I like the fact that it's a little quirky and it's a little off, and mm-hmm. trying to fix it would actually ruin it. <laughs> and so this kind of thing sometimes there's things like when you're a musician there's point in time things like you can go and do 10 takes and you find out like the third take is the best one yeah. and, do, and doing 10 more isn't going to really fix it the fact that the third one is the one you know and it's your, your producers or your collaborators can kind of help with that sometimes and say hey you know it's sometimes like you, you just can't keep on beating a dead horse it's like sometimes what you get when you originally had that idea is like the freshest mm-hmm. and maybe the most honest idea, uh, you know, piece of music and, and everything from there starts to degrade. Yeah. <laughs> it becomes like a Xerox. It's not as good as the original. <laughs> um, so like, yeah, I'm very excited that you're, you're doing this music and we've got like this new hope project that we have if you if do, do you call this project with these four parts it does it have a, a, a overall project name or is each song like you said is independent do you have a, like a, a term for it for in your own mind or your own work how you label this these set of songs so this group i call it this is what poets write about and it actually comes from an old diary entry i found when i was looking through the times that i wrote these songs and was where it came from that line is because I would always come across poems and songs about this kind of love and heartbreak and people have been writing about this all throughout history 
and they will still be writing about it in the future. And I realized that at that moment, it was for the first time I understood what these were about and what these feelings were about. So that's why I titled it, This is What Poets Write About. That, that's cool. Because like, I think uh, a lot of singer-songwriters, if you talk to them, they started as poets. And then the poems mm-hmm. kind of transformed into songs. And you know, a lot, a lot of artists, a lot of singer-songwriters, they'll, they'll have diaries or journals. And you mm-hmm. go back and you look at their journals. And, you know, I read a lot of music history. And you'll you'll see like the little snippets of projects coming out of their journals, coming out of their diaries. They end up becoming the song lyrics in in some you know in the songs. And you actually see them. You know, they wrote on napkins, they wrote on index cards, they wrote on the back of menus, or they have it in journals. And you see the pieces of that complete thought that became the song. Yeah. Do you, do you, I think we talked about it before, but you, do you, like you you're, a lot of your work comes from that, right? That type of process. Yeah, because I keep a diary. And so whenever I think of something or if I'm going through something particular that I'm trying to understand, I just write all about it in the diary. And sometimes there are these lines that just transform themselves later on into song lyrics and another project. And, it's really fun to see where they came from. Yeah, I think it, it, like a lot of artists in in the way that like a musician will have like a big reference library, you know, because what I've been doing is I build up like these these like sessions and I'll, mm-hmm. I'll put down a bunch of stuff for like an hour and put it all on, on tape, right? And then I, same thing with my journal. I'll be writing stuff in my journal and it's like, so then I'll go back hit the replay and say, well, hey, you know, 10 minutes into this thing, I found a groove. And then, you know, mm-hmm. five pages into my journal, I found the, the, the words that actually go with that group. Yeah. <laughs> you know, and you just kind of, then you start pasting it back together or taking it, you know, here and there. And then you find, you find the songs. Uh, and, and that's, I think that's always been the, the kind of like puzzle. They, they, you know, or sometimes it just happens. And sometimes I've just done stream of consciousness. And, mm-hmm. and open the mic while I'm playing, and then that ends up becoming, hey, that actually works. And then I'm gonna I'm gonna work on that. But a lot of it will be, you know, first or second take. A stream of consciousness stuff becomes the project. And because, like, as an artist, you you have all this stuff kind of going through your mind on a reel, like your mind reel, <laughs> and <laughs> it's like there. And if you're a musician or a creative, you access it, and you've been you might have been thinking about something for like two weeks or a month or whatever, or the, or that same day. And it suddenly you hit the notes and suddenly those words get recalled by your memory and you boom, the muse just created something. Um, so that's, I think that's, that, that's just the process of creativity. Yeah. And especially what you're saying about stream of consciousness. And I find that I do that sometimes when I'm writing, especially with getting over you, that's, I just opened a page and I just started writing how I felt and it and most of it made it into the song. I think it's because when you're just writing it on the moment, that's actually the truest words that you will say. The yeah, you're not self-editing. You're like if you yeah. get in front of somebody and it's kind of like when the singer-songwriter is like, well, we like having our time, our, our kind of quiet time, but it's really not quiet, it's like creative time. 
<laughs> and 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 we can use that kind of like some people would say, "Well, I'm bored because there's nothing going on." But we can take that time, and then we can be honest with ourselves. And if you yeah. you know when you're a singer songwriter, I think the key is the best. You know, the more honest you are, and you're not really hiding anything, that your work reflects something that everybody can understand. Because we're able to tap into stuff that a lot of people don't want to tap into. They try to bury it. They try to hide it. They they try to like act like it's not there. And what people appreciate from singer songwriters is that they tap into that and then they put it out there and it's wow, you know, I wish I could have said that, but they can feel it. So your audience can feel that. They then maybe can't ever write it that way, but they can appreciate when somebody else does. So I just, uh, yeah, I think that's just why people get drawn into that type of art. Why I've always been focused on talking to singer-songwriters. Yeah. Because I find actually just letting it out, maybe writing it out, talking about it to someone is actually the best way of dealing with anything. Yeah, and then you get, you're able to kind of use your whole the whole world as a sounding board, you know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, like singer songwriters, musicians, we we kind of like okay, we're having a psychotherapy like a like a sound therapy because <laughs> <laughs> we 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 kind of spill our our hearts out to the world and kind of open book and and you know they that is a catharsis because you get it out and then people can react to it and then you get some songwriters who will try to like back away from it because i saw a famous like dylan interview and they were he they were asking him about his like politics in the 60s and how he was very very liberal and very you know politically on the cutting edge of like civil rights and then when they asked about it when he was in his 60s he was trying to like deny it he was trying to like hide from it he was trying to act like oh that was just words you know but it didn't seem like that at the time <laughs> so it seems like so, so sometimes like you can be so honest and later in life you get like oh well, I kind of want to back away from that <laughs> um, but it was interesting to see him kind of kind of cringing and backing away from his more liberal politics because he had become you know more conservative as he got older and and it's interesting to see that you know in, in a singer songwriter it's like okay well sometimes that can kind of burn you I guess if you didn't realize that you were going to change <laughs> um yeah, I think it's just interesting to, to to read, you know, into people's art, you know, what they're doing. So, so what's next after the the four songs are fully out there? Do you have other things you're working on? Yes, I actually have two more songs that are not part of the series that I've finished recently. So I'm just planning way ahead. <laughs> <laughs> So are you going to dive more into um, online, like Facebook, Twitch, you know, things out there that, that online performances are focused more on, on being creative, you know, doubling down on, on right, uh, creating more projects or try to, you know, get this stuff out in like video form or live performance form in the ways that we can't do it because of COVID? Yeah, I think... At the moment, a lot of what I've been focusing on has been producing the music, but I'm definitely going to be, I think after these songs are out, definitely going to be doing a lot more live streams or performance videos. 
So with the orchestral, um, if you were going to do a live performance, would you include the orchestral um, backing tracks or do them more uh, unplugged? Or is the whole point where you'd want to do it with the full? If you had live performing it on Facebook or Twitch or something, would you, would you do the whole piece? Or do you decide to present it in a different way? I think if I do like a live performance on Facebook, I would do it with just the guitar. Because I feel like in a way, it's like when I'm listening to music, I like hearing produced versions. But also when I watch performances, I actually really like the acoustic versions of it because it's something new. Yeah, yeah. It's not the same as the studio version. Yeah. I always like a, a band that will go out and play their hit and it doesn't sound like the album. Where I think today that maybe is not the trend, but growing up in the seventies and the eighties, you know, the whole point of seeing my the live act was like I didn't want to hear like Prince play everything on nineteen ninety nine the way it was on the record. I like the fact that he wouldn't he would change it. Yeah. It, it wouldn't or even Springsteen, like the songs that didn't sound exactly that the the way they were recorded. Right. He was to go see the dead or Parliament Funkadelic. And you know, the fact that the bands would actually go off and off on a tangent, it was it was something what what we wanted to see, what we wanted to hear, um, and so that was you know it seems like today that's kind of the change where people, at least with popular music, like they want to hear it like so somebody just goes out with a sequencer and then hits the play button, <laughs> and then you kind of are playing karaoke with your own music, um, not that that's bad, but it's it's not not what I grew up with. So I do appreciate it when somebody does like an unplugged performance and not exactly what was on the record and they even might change the lyrics based on the way they feel. Yeah, yeah, because you can always listen to it as it is on the record, but when you're watching a live performance, it's more fun to see what it is at that moment in time. Oh, yeah. I mean, this this famous like a Dylan example is like during like uh, his concerts where he had a lot of things from Blood on the Tracks. He had multiple versions of like Tangled Up in Blue and Idiot Wind. And he would go on stage and have whole verses that weren't on the record. And if you go on the live, you know, history of Dylan, there are multiple versions of those songs that have whole different sections. That, oh. whole, you know, that, that he decides in certain concerts, okay, well, I didn't put that on the record, but I'm going to do it here. And have a totally different section, totally different lyrics. And you're like, that was kind of like the draw. Oh, which version is he gonna do? <laughs> you know, and that that was because I was like, I'm a deep Dylan guy. You know, I, I listen to every little word he's saying and get drawn into it. But I was like, wow, that's that's not the same as what he did in '76 yeah. and what he's in '74 is not the same. They're different versions, um, and they even even have the bands play it differently. You know, some bands would play it with 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 like slide blue blues guitars some play with heavy heavy rock guitars some play it more countryfied you know more like the band and every time you saw it like a different version of dylan's presentation uh yeah. and so that would that's always drawn me into like when artists will go and do a different version of their own music and i, I actually will go back and collect <laughs> all the variations <laughs> um yeah, so that's cool that you're you're going to be doing that. I, I, that that's that. I think that's really what people want to see. You know, like why Kurt Cobain, like when he was on MTV Unplugged, and he did that acoustic version, and 
And he was this big grunge kind of post-punk rocker and he came there mm-hmm. unplugged. And that was so honest. And people thought, well, like, wow, that people, I think, got an appreciation where they thought it was that he was a deeper musician than they thought yeah. initially, you know, because of his ability to convey that. I think if you can convey it with less going on, you know, if you don't have all mm-hmm. that armor around you, the sonic armor of, of your band, <laughs> just to kind of protect you if you can show that in a delicate situation where you're just with an acoustic instrument yeah, I think uh, people can hear you in a different way yeah definitely especially because I wrote these songs with just a guitar so it's a bit more like being in a conversation with the person when you're just performing it with the guitar without the whole protection in a way of the orchestra yeah, yeah, that's always like the really sign of a, a musician that feels comfortable when they can they can be that in that unplugged kind of zone and and carry it off and and you're like wow, there's no there's no studio tricks here. <laughs> Here's the real real deal. Um, so we're very happy we have you back on the show, um, Regina Fay. Everybody should go out on July third and get getting over you. It'll be yes. on all the media uh, streaming services. Uh, we've got the Spotify link on this podcast link set up for it. And go out and listen to part one live to you, uh, which is out right now on all streaming services, but includes Spotify because we're on Spotify. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, yeah, we're glad to talk to you again. I hope you stay safe in this uh, kind of trying period. We're very happy that you're, you're still pushing your creativity and that, that we love to see that. And, uh, very excited you're still putting out new projects so that i'm very happy for for what you're doing and we're wish you great success on your new project thank you and thanks for having me thank you have a good day you too